The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Okay, we are today in 1 Samuel 17, it's verses 41 through 58. This is David and Goliath, the Valley of Allah, part 4. So, let's see here, starting in verse 41, and we'll go all the way through the end of the chapter. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, and the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. Then this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entry of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sha'araim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Avner took him and brought him before Saul and the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. We are at the Valley of Elah, where David slew Goliath. While typing this series, a friend, Sarah, 
emailed me out of the blue with a joke. Now, I'm not one to include jokes in sermons, but the timing was so propitious that I thought I would share it with you, and you'll see why in a minute. The Israelis and Arabs realized that if they continued fighting, they would someday end up destroying the whole world. So they decided to settle their dispute with an ancient practice, a duel of two, like David and Goliath. This duel would be a dogfight. The negotiators agreed each side would take five years to develop the best fighting dog they could. The dog that won the fight would earn its people the right to rule the disputed areas. The losing side would have to lay down its arms for good. The Arabs found the biggest, meanest Dobermans and Rottweilers in the world. They bred them together and then crossed their offspring with the meanest Siberian wolves. They selected only the biggest, strongest puppy of each litter, fed it the best food, and killed all the other puppies. They used steroids and trainers in their quest for the perfect killing machine. After the five years were up, they had a dog that needed steel prison bars on its cage. <laughs> Only expert trainers could handle this incredibly nasty and ferocious beast. When the day of the big dogfight finally arrived, the Israelis showed up with a very strange-looking animal, a dachshund that was 10 feet long. Everyone at the dogfight arena felt sorry for the Israelis. No one there seriously thought this weird, odd-looking animal stood any chance against the growling beast over in the Arab camp. All the bookies took one look and predicted that the Arab dog would win in less than one minute. As the cages were opened, the dachshund slowly waddled towards the center of the ring. The Arab dog leapt from its cage and charged the giant wiener dog. As he got within an inch of the Israeli dog, the dachshund opened its jaws and swallowed the Arab beast whole. In one bite, there was nothing left but a small puff of fur from the Arab killer dog's tail floating to the ground. The stunned crowd of international observers, bookies, and media personnel let out a collective gasp of disbelief and surprise. The Arabs approached the Israelis, muttering and shaking their heads in disbelief. We do not understand, said their leader. Our top scientists and breeders worked for five long years with the meanest, biggest Dobermans, Rottweilers, and Siberian wolves, and they developed an incredible killing machine of a dog. The Israelis replied, well, for five years, we have had a team of Jewish plastic surgeons from Sarasota, Florida, working to make an alligator look like a dachshund. Our text verse today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's verses 27 through 29. Now, before I read you my text verse, I'm going to tell you why I don't like giving sermons during, or jokes during sermons. The reason why is because that is all you are going to remember when you leave here today. I never give jokes. I, I cherish the word of God, and they say that people will remember one or two things from any sermon. And I always want it to be the word of God. So I want you to forget that joke, and I want you to pay attention to two points that interest you from the, the sermon today. Our text verse comes from 1 Corinthians 1, it's verses 27 through 29. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Unlike the Jews and the joke who fudge things in order to win, David is given a test without time to fudge anything. He is going forth solely in the strength of the Lord, and he says as much to his enormous adversary. 
even if he is armed with the implements he is skilled in, the battle is so lopsided in the minds of the audience watching the events that it looks like there is no chance of winning. But before either David or Goliath existed, God knew what the outcome would be. He placed each in their individual stations of life, and they were the products of those stations. Everything about them was set for the moment of time in which they existed. The same is true with us. We are here for a set span. We have been equipped for this particular moment in time. The parents we were born to, the opportunities that are laid before us, and so on, all of these were ordained by God through his infinite and perfect wisdom. And so let us have confidence that who we are and what we have before us on the road we are on is appropriate to the person God wove us together to be. This is the attitude we should always express because it is based on truths which are found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. It's verses 41 through 47. Now, before I start, I'll remind you again, all we're doing for these past sermons, the past three plus today, is mechanical information. What is going on in an actual historical, literal sense? And then we'll tie it all together next week with what God wants us to see in these particular passages. Verse 41, so the Philistine came and began drawing near to David. The Hebrew is pregnant with emotion. And came the Philistine, coming and drawing near unto David. The energy of the words shows determined purpose. Goliath had weeks of waiting for a challenge. Each step now is one of delight and of anticipation. Finally, a worthy foe has left the ranks of Israel to meet my challenge. This is further supplemented by the words, verse 41 continues, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And the man lifter the shield before him. The words follow after verse 7, but they leave out the verb went. In verse 7, and lifter of the shield went before him. Here in verse 41, and the man lifter the shield before him. The movement and thus the purpose and intent of the action is ascribed to Goliath. And so it is as if the shield bearer is a single unit with Goliath being propelled on by his movement. Along with this is the fact that the giant adorned in all of his military gear and with a shield bearer as a part of that gear is actually not alone. Someone guards him, but none goes before David. The contrast is made all the more poignant by the use of the words. In his state and in the confidence he surely felt, we next enter the very thoughts of Goliath. One can almost see him finally close enough to see David, and he is incredulous, so much so that he leans his head forward a little bit more, a couple more inches, as if he needs better focus, and then a sense of disbelieving amazement fills his face. His nose scrunches, his eyes squinch, his forehead crimps down a little bit, and he goes, huh? As the narrative says, verse 42, and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, David, and looked attentively and saw David. The word navat comes from a root meaning to scan. Thus it signifies looking at something attentively. With the same stupid look on his face that appeared in the previous verse, Goliath carefully observes David. And verse 42 continues, he disdained him. 
and despised him. The word here was first seen in the account of Esau and the selling of his birthright. For a mere bowl of red soup, he sold off what was of the highest value, showing disdain for it. Here, Goliath looks at David and disesteems him. He sees nothing of value in regard to a battle. Verse 42 continues, for he was only a youth. Kihayanar, for he was a youth. The Israelites had sent a boy forth to fight a man, and they had sent an inexperienced person to challenge a champion. It was the first reason to disesteem David. Verse 42 continues, ruddy, veadmoni, and red. Here the word admoni or red is used for the third and last time. It was first used of Esau when he was born back in Genesis 25 and the first came out red, that word admoni. He was like a hairy garment all over so they called his name Esau. It was next used in chapter 16 when describing David. So he went and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, red, with bright eyes and good looking and the Lord said, arise, anoint him for he is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. The word comes from the same as the verb adom, or to be read. It can speak of the hair or the complexion. Either way, the connection to Esau should not be missed. To understand why, take a break and go back and watch the sermons on Esau and Jacob from Genesis 25 and again in Genesis 27. It is all the more interesting when it is considered that both words, despise and red, are used in both accounts. A connection between the two has been established. Being red in hair or in complexion was another reason to disesteem David. He had no gray hairs of an adult or he had a weak complexion of a boy. Either way, Goliath saw him as unfit. Verse 42 continues, and good looking. With handsome appearance, this would be a complete surprise. Anyone who was trained in battle would have the look of a warrior. They may have painted their face to make them look more aggressive. They may have scars, missing teeth, and so on. And they would certainly snarl and show contempt for their opponent. David displayed none of these features. He looked like any regular person that you might meet on the street. Thus, it was a third reason to disesteem him. Verse 43, so the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Verse 40 said that David took his staff in his hand. It was singular. Here Goliath says sticks. This is certainly an expression of derision, like saying to someone, grow up and stop playing with tinker toys. But more, he adds in hakelev anochi, the dog, I. In other words, fighting the dog with sticks may be effective. Is that what you think I am? He stands there arrayed in battle armor and with weapons far fiercer than just angry flashing teeth like a dog. Sticks will be entirely ineffective against such a foe. Because of this, verse 43 continues, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Out of 27 translations checked for this sermon, only two state this in the singular, his God. Goliath is cursing David be'elohav, or in his God, meaning the God of Israel. This is surely what is being referred to. No Philistine god is named in the account, and Goliath has already been shown to purposefully come out morning and evening to challenge Israel, assuredly at the time of the daily sacrifices. This would not be a reliance on his false god or gods, but an attack against Israel's god. Verse 44, and the Philistine said to David, come to me. Goliath was no longer in the mood for advancing forward. 
He must have thought the challenge was a joke or maybe some type of a ruse put forward by Saul. Either way, it is obvious he takes David's presence as no true challenge at all. Hence, instead of continuing to press forward, he called for David to come to him, certainly not expecting him to do so. But if he did, only then would he act. Verse 44 going on, And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Goliath was so confident of the situation that he was prepared to dispatch his opponent with little effort and leave his carcass out for whatever came to collect it. He had not moved away from his side of the ravine, and so no Israelite would dare come and carry him away. In his mind, David is already dead and of no threat at all. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. David sets a complete and absolute contrast between himself and Goliath. Goliath is using what is created and then manipulated within the creation, meaning the fashioning of implements for battle out of elements to conduct his warfare. However, David comes forward in the name of Jehovah, the self-existent God. As he is self-existent, he is then separate from the creation. He is transcendent over it. As this is so, trusting in his name means trusting in the sum of who he is. He has presented himself already to Israel in numerous ways. He has revealed himself as Jehovah Yireh, the Lord will provide. He has revealed himself as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is my healer. He has revealed himself as Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. He has revealed himself as Jehovah Mikadishkem, the Lord who sanctifies you. He has revealed himself as Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. These are but a few of the ways the Lord has revealed himself to his covenant people thus far. But David presents him to Goliath as Jehovah Seveot, the Lord of hosts. It is a term introduced in 1 Samuel chapter 3, and this is its fifth use in scripture. The name comes from the word Sava, signifying warfare or an army. Being a plural, it indicates he is the Lord of armies. Later, David will use this term when he pens the 24th Psalm. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah, Psalm 24:10. But David expands on this name saying that he is, verse 45 continues, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Elohe ma'arkot Yisrael. God ranks Israel. The many-faceted Lord, who is a provider, a healer, a source of peace, and so forth, is also the captain and ruler of the ranks of his army. The army that Goliath is openly defied. David will trust in this one to take away the reproach of this uncircumcised Philistine. His confidence in the Lord was unwavering throughout his life. From the 20th Psalm, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. David is trusting solely in the Lord as his helper. Goliath thinks he sees an accomplished victory. David, however, looks beyond the moment to the ultimate defeat of the enemy. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Hayom The day that this will shut you up, Jehovah, in my hand. The word is sagar. It signifies to close or shut up. Hence, David is saying that Goliath will be ensnared in his hand, unable to escape. In such an incapacitated state, he then says, verse 46 continues, and I will strike you and take your head from you. 
The confidence of David is so great that not only will Goliath be shut up in his hand, but David will yield complete control over him in that state, prophesying that he will remove his head from his body. Plus, verse 46 continues, And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. The word is carcass. It is singular. And I will give the carcass of the Philistines camp. David looks at the entire camp of the Philistines as one body that will be slain and presented as one offering to the birds and the beasts. In the defeat of Goliath, the deed will be accomplished. Verse 46 continues, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And may know all the earth, for there is God to Israel. The name Israel means he strives with God. It can be for God or it can be against God. The idea here is that God is not for Israel, but that God possesses Israel. They are his people, and he displays that fact through them. Verse 47, then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. The implements of battle used by Goliath are unnecessary for the Lord to gain the victory. Even if used, it is not they that win the battle, but the Lord himself who does. In mentioning these two implements, it is right to understand their etymology. The harev, or sword, comes from harav, meaning to be dry or dried up. It is identical to the name of the mountain Horeb, where the law of Moses was received, and which comes from the same root word, harav. The hanit, or spear, comes from the verb hana, to bend down, encamp, or pitch a tent. Understanding these things will help us to understand the typology that is being presented and why the Lord included such things in this marvelous account of David facing the giant Philistine. David says that it is not in a sword or a spear that the victory in battle is attained. Rather, verse 47 continues, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Ki for to Jehovah the battle, and he will give you, plural, all of you, into our hands. The battle belongs to Jehovah alone. Only in Jehovah can the enemy be defeated. In his victory, he then hands it to his people. This is reflected many years later in a psalm penned by the sons of Korah, where it says, For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies, and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever, Selah. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You may have the power to pull up fence posts, but when this battle is over, it is you who will have died. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, in him is our trust and our hope this day. What happens here to our children, we will tell when you are dead and your corpse is cast away. Blessed be the Lord and blessed be his name. My trust is in him to do away with you today. Great will be the victory and the honor of his fame when you are gone and when your corpse is cast away. Our second thought today is with a sling and a stone. It's verses 48 through 58. Verse 48, so it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. The parley is ended. Goliath could no longer remain still. The challenge has been made. 
it was apparent that his opponent was serious, and so he arose to full height and entered into motion. The double verbs enhance the excitement of the narrative. Goliath arose and came and drew near. Likewise, it says, and David hurried and ran. No Hollywood movie could improve on the tension of the moment. Verse 49, then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The account gives a simple description of how the marvelous blow came about. He put his hand into the bag, pulled out a single stone and slung it with the precision of a sniper hitting Goliath directly in his forehead. Such precision has already been recorded during the time of the judges. Among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. For David tending to the sheep, there would be little else to do in the wilderness than practice with his sling. His skill would be so refined that the account is not only likely, but it would be hard to imagine how he could miss even while at a full run. He was proficient with the sling, the Lord's honor was at stake, and the Lord's presence was with him. The victory was a given. Verse 49 continues, so that the stone sank into his forehead. And sank the stone in his forehead. The forehead in the Bible signifies the place of conscience and identification. David identified with Jehovah, but Goliath had identified against him. He had made his stand and he was judged for it. So great was the blow that the stone not only crushed his forehead, it sank into it, becoming one with it. Verse 49 continues, and he fell on his face to the earth. The words show that not only was he injured, but he was completely incapable of any further action. Being face down, he was left completely exposed to whatever fate awaited him. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. In 27 translations used for this sermon, only the NET Bible includes the definite articles before sling and stone. The Hebrew reads, Vayechezak David min hapelishti bakela uba even. And stronger David from the Philistine in the sling and in the stone. The strength of David is placed in the sling and in the stone. It is through this means that the Lord won the victory. Verse 50 continues, and struck the Philistine and killed him. Here it says that David struck the Philistine and killed him. The means with which the kill is credited is to the sling and to the stone. David hit his mark and the victory was won. It then says of this, verse 50 continues, but there was no sword in the hand of David. David, And sword none in hand David. It is specific and unambiguous. What it is saying is that David did not have his own sword. It's a very important point here. This is stated specifically for a purpose. David prevailed not with his own sword. Verse 51, therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. David had no sword and yet he prevailed over the Philistine. However, to ensure the victory was complete and that the wound didn't only appear to be terminal, David then drew out the sword of the Philistine and killed him with it. It then says, and cut off his head. Whether they are two actions or one, the giant's life was ended with his own sword, and his head was removed with it as well. The events are minutely recorded to provide specific details of other events coming in redemptive history, which these now anticipate. 
This is the last time that the sword is mentioned in this passage, but this same sword will be brought back into the narrative later in 1 Samuel. Here's what it says in 1 Samuel 21. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the Valley of Allah, there it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. It is a marvelous passage which plays on the name of Goliath, the exposer, and on his sword, which was covered in a cloth. Goliath thought to expose with his sword, but his sword lay covered behind the ephod. Verse 51 continues, And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Here the word translated as champion is completely different than the previous two uses. The word is gibor. It signifies strong or mighty. Thus, it could be translated as their strong man. Though Goliath had made an agreement that the Philistines would become the slaves of Israel if he was defeated, the people were so shocked to see him dead that they simply turned heel and fled. In seeing this, the entire mood of the battle lines changed and Israel went on the offensive. Verse 52, now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley. The Hebrew says a valley, not the valley. Because of this, many questions and much speculation arise among scholars. One possibility is that the word guy or valley is a misspelling of gath. They're very closely spelled. The Greek translation says gat. And so this is possible, but that is not my preferred choice. Or it could be an indiscriminate valley, which is being referred to. Regardless of this, the men of Israel and Judah took the initiative and raised the war cry and went hot on the heels of the Philistines. Verse 52 continues, and to the gates of Ekron, Ekron, and to gates Ekron. The name Ekron comes from Akar, meaning to uproot or pluck up. Thus, it signifies uprooting or extermination. Zephaniah makes a play on the name in his book. He says, for Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday and Ekron shall be uprooted. You got to play on words there. Ekron is noted in 2 Kings 1 verse 2 as the location of the god Baal Zebub, a false deity that Jesus will equate with the ruler of demons in Matthew 12 verse 24. Verse 52 continues, and the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sha'araim, even as far as Gat and Ekron. The name Sha'araim is the plural of the word Sha'ar, or gate. Thus it signifies two gates. It is the scene of a bloody battle where the bodies lay strewn for literally miles. Israel took the initiative and overcame the enemies because David had first slain their middleman. Verse 53, then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines. And returned sons Israel from burning after Philistines. The word dalak or pursue comes from a root signifying a flame. Thus, there is a sense of heated, burning pursuit as they cut the enemy down as if stubble, which is then burned. When that was accomplished, they returned. Verse 53 continues, and they plundered their tents. It doesn't say tents. Rather, it says, Vayashosu et machanehem. A lot of ha, ha, ha in there. <laughs> and they plundered their camps. What this means is that the army of the Philistines was divided in various camps based on the villages that they came from. They just destroyed the inhabitants of those cities, and then they returned to plunder their various camps. Verse 54, And David took the head of the Philistine 
and brought it to Jerusalem. The meaning of the name Jerusalem is debated. The second half is not questioned. It comes from the verb shalem, meaning to be complete or to be sound. The word gives the sense of shalom or peace. It isn't merely a quiet peace, but a state of wholeness or completion. The first part could come from one of several sources. Its meaning is foundation of peace, reign of peace, R-A-I-N, possession of peace, or something closely akin to this. David is said to have taken Goliath's head there, but no explanation as to why is given. Nor is the head mentioned again anywhere in Scripture. At the time, the fortress of Zion was not yet captured, but Jerusalem was possessed by Israel. It is possible that he brought the head there to terrify the Jebusites, letting them know that they too would be defeated in due time. Others think that this is written in anticipation of the later history when David did conquer Zion and brought the head to this fortress at that time, meaning that he kept it as a trophy all along and Jerusalem was where it finally ended up when David ruled over Israel. That seems to stretch the intent, and it would then make the next clause seem out of place. Verse 54 continues, but he put his armor in his tent. Ve'et kelav sham be'aholo. And his goods he put in his tent. David was obviously given the right to all of Goliath's goods. This would have included his armor, weapons, and personal effects. But is that what this is referring to? It brings in an obvious set of possibilities, of which the Hebrew remains open to either. Is this speaking of David putting Goliath's goods in his tent, or David putting his goods in Goliath's tent? As I said, the Hebrew simply says, and his goods he put in his tent. Translational and scholarly comment is unanimous that it is the former. The second option isn't even considered. However, the pattern of the previous clause makes David the subject and Goliath the object. If that pattern continues in this clause, it would read, first clause, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And then this clause, and his, David's goods, he put in Goliath's tent. If the Israelites plundered the camp of the Philistines, it means that they also procured the tents along with everything else. David came to the camp to deliver supplies and then he would have returned to his father's bet or house. Because of this, and it can only be speculation, I would suggest that the intent of the verse is that David took over the tent of Goliath, placing his goods there. If this is so, it would mean that everything belonging to Goliath became the possession of David. I know somebody's already figured out what's going on here. Another question which arises is, why would it speak of Goliath's head being taken to Jerusalem a long time in the future and then revert to this note at the time after the battle. What seems more likely is that the head of Goliath was taken to Jerusalem as a note of victory. The city of Jerusalem was granted to Benjamin, but it bordered Judah and was also occupied by people from the tribe of Judah. As Judah means praise and Jerusalem means foundation of peace, it seems to have a symbolic gesture playing on the two names. The important points to consider are that it says his head, not his skull. And the name Goliath is not a derivative of the same root as the word skull. Thus, this cannot have any typological connection to Golgotha, although that would have been an interesting twist. Something else rather is being pictured. Verse 55, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Avner, the commander of the army, Avner, Whose son is this youth? The final verses of the chapter have long perplexed both scholar and reader alike. 
Indeed, many fall back on the supposition that they are not a part of the original text, being lacking in the Greek translation of it, thus supposedly demonstrating that they are not original. Others simply dismiss them with no commentary or very little commentary, hoping to avoid the dilemma altogether. The reason for this is that in chapter 16, David had already been introduced to Saul and has tended to him during his time of mental affliction. There are several possibilities concerning this. The first is that Saul here focuses on who David's father is. Unless one is sharp and has a great memory, he may have simply forgotten where David came from and who his father is. The verses here never ask who David is, just who his father is. If David prevailed in the battle, he would need to know who his family was to be given his daughter and exempted from taxes in Israel. A second option is that the accounts are not necessarily chronological, and this is actually likely. The events are being tied together categorically in order to present David logically in relation to how events fall into a greater picture of his life and also of redemptive history. David is anointed king by Samuel. At some point, his brothers are in the camp awaiting battle with the Philistines. David comes to the camp and eventually becomes the hero of the battle. During that time, Saul asks whose son he is. Afterwards, this portion of the narrative ends. Eventually, Saul has gone or goes into fits of mental depression. It is found that the same person who was the hero against Goliath also has other skills and is called into permanent service under Saul. This supposition seems refuted by the opening words of chapter 18. Jonathan is mentioned there. But that too may not be chronological. Jonathan is never mentioned in relation to David before that chapter. And thus taking it chronologically still omits any hint of how the two met. It is true the order is difficult, but it is no more difficult than understanding that the time frames of events, such as in chapter 16, could have been over a period of many years. Verse 55 continues, and Avner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. Avner comes from two words, av or father, and ner meaning a lamp. Thus, it means something like father is a lamp, or it could even be extended to say father is light. As Avner's father is named ner, meaning lamp, it may simply be my father is light. As Avner doesn't have any idea about who David's father is, the narrative continues. Verse 56, so the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Here the word elem, or young man, is used. It is only seen here and then again in 1 Samuel 20, verse 22. The fact that Saul uses this word indicating a young man seems to indicate that the age of David here is not the same as the account in 1 Samuel 16. After only a few years between events, David could have grown a beard and looked completely different than he did when he went before Saul at other times. Thus, he would have no idea who his father was because he either didn't recognize David or he had not yet even met David. Once the battle was over, David is presented to Saul. Verse 57, then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Avner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. David is presented to Saul while he is still carrying Goliath's head. It should be noted that when David was first brought before Saul in this chapter, Saul never asked his father's name. It may be an indication that he actually didn't expect David to prevail. Now that he has, Saul needs to know whose family he belonged to in order to honor the father of the hero of the battle. With this probably the intent, the inquiry is made. Verse 58, and Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? 
Again, the inquiry is made of who David's father is. This, along with the unusual use of the word elem, or young man, tends to favor the notion that the accounts are categorically placed. Even within this chapter, they're categorically placed. There's nothing that follows almost anywhere in a chronological sense. How much more over the entire narrative? Saul wants to know what family he belongs to, and verse 58 finishes with, So David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Vayomer David ben Avdecha Yishai bet halachmi, and said David, Son, your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. It seems like an odd place for the narrative to end, but it's not. Saul needed an answer to whose son David was, but we needed an answer to who David is. It is this David who is the son of Jesse, and it is this Jesse who, according to Ruth chapter 4, is the son of Obed. And it is this Obed who is the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, of whom the book of Ruth is written. The names are important because they keep taking us back to earlier stories. The father of Boaz is Salmon, who was married to Rahab the harlot. Each time the Bible focuses on someone, we have to remember that we are reading something that was documented and already known to the people. The book of Joshua detailed who Rahab was, and the story eventually goes back to Perez and Zerah, who came from Judah. The importance of these final verses of this chapter mean one thing to Saul, but they mean something entirely different to those who want to know what God is doing in redemptive history. With the events of David's life now being recorded, the next generation would have another clue concerning the promised Messiah. Let us not forget this. When we come to a passage that seems out of place or irrelevant to the immediate narrative, it does not mean that it is either out of place or irrelevant at all. We have discovered why it is important to know who David's father is from these final verses of the chapter. Next week, we will try to find out how the chapter itself is important to the overall redemptive narrative of the Bible. It is great that an unprotected youth slew a giant all by himself in the Valley of Allah. But unless that story has some greater significance, it is just a curious story. Many people have done great things, and their stories are not included in the Bible. But God has chosen select events to give us clues into what he is doing or what he will do and how those things will come about. All of it has meaning, and as I closed this sermon typing out on 3 August of 2020, there was a challenge ahead for me to see if what has been presented will reveal other things to your waiting ears. For now, let us just remember that Christ is the main focus of this marvelous gift we call the Holy Bible. Even if nothing else comes out of the story from today, and I'll tell you right now, a lot more came out of the story, we can know that David's heroics are recorded and he will eventually become the king of the nation. From there, covenant promises will be made to him concerning his house and his successors, including the greatest of them, our Lord. David was a person of faith, even from his youth. He trusted with all of his being that he would prevail because he trusted in his God that it would be so. For us, we're on the other side of the cross. If David could have such marvelous faith and confidence in his God from such an obscure perspective of God's overall plan, shouldn't we have so much more? I mean, really, think it through. Let us trust in the Lord, have confidence in his promises, and stand fast in our faith. David pleased God. We, too, can please him. And the way it is so is to believe his word. And so let us do so to his glory. 
This is the only source we have, folks, of Jesus Christ. This is it. I don't care what anybody tells you. Oh, he's written by Josephus and a couple other people. You wouldn't know who he's talking about any more than, you know, Polonius Maximus, who died out in the obscure wilderness of Crete or something. Without this book, we would know nothing of substance about Jesus Christ. So, we cannot know the unseen God. It is impossible. Outside of general revelation, we cannot know him without knowing Jesus Christ. And we cannot know Jesus Christ without knowing this book. In other words, we can't know anything except what we can think through about God logically from nature without the Holy Bible. This is our resource to understand what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do in redemptive history. And I will tell you, I said it three times today, and I'll say it once again, that when we get to next week, you will say, I am so happy that this story is in the Bible. I now know what, why God put this in here. It is marvelous. It is literally marvelous what we're going to see next week. Some of you already seem to have an indication of what's coming. It's even better than you can imagine. I assure you of that. Marvelous what God has shown us in this passage. And we saw that all the way through Exodus, Numbers. We saw it in even the beginning of Deuteronomy. These historical stories all point to something wonderful in redemptive history. This is no different. I've got a closing verse for you here. Oh, wait, before I do that, I've got to tell you. No, I've just got to tell you. I mean, we're talking about the Bible. We're talking about Jesus. But somebody might be listening that has never accepted Jesus as their Savior. And I'm going to tell you something. Without him, you are not going to enter the pearly gates of heaven. You are not going to be given access past the cherubim. And so you need to know what to do in order to be saved. And it's forever once you call on Jesus. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins. That implies that you are a sinner whether you know it or not. I see a mother over here with her children, and I guarantee you that if I asked her right now, did you have to teach those children to do wrong? She would say, no, I did not. But she has to teach them to do right. It's in our nature to do wrong. We have sinned, all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried, proving that he was dead. He wasn't just in a, you know, a sleep or something like that. He was literally dead. He was buried. And Christ rose again, proving that he had no sin because the wages of sin is death. And if he came out of the grave, it means he had no sin. And also proving that he is God incarnate. Those three points are the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is only one way that you can appropriate that. And it is by calling on the name of the Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you call on the name of the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. After that, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. God seals you with his Holy Spirit. It is a promise. It is a guarantee that you will never lose. And guess what? I'm going to give you a little clue of this. That is actually pictured in what we saw last week. Okay? Go back and read your sermons and you'll find that out. What I just told you is right there. Please call on Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God and put your past behind you. Find that new life that comes through faith in Christ. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 144. Same psalm that I used last week, but a different passage from it. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. The one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David, his servant, from the deadly sword. What is that picturing? Uh, it's wonderful. Wait till next week. Okay. I have a very sporty Maserati here that somebody can drive home today. If they can answer the next question, actually, you can't have it. Somebody's going to, this is just, you get the honor of having it. Not to, you don't really get to take it home. But if you can answer the next question, then I will give you this Maserati honorarily for the week, okay? 
What is the exact middle chapter of the Bible? One nineteen, one eighteen, one sixteen, one seventeen. You get a Maserati. That's what I read today. The one hundred seventeenth Psalm. It is the very middle of the Bible. How do we know that? Because there's eleven hundred eighty-nine chapters in the Bible. Because there's eleven hundred eighty-nine. It cannot be the hundred eighteenth Psalm that everybody puts on YouTube and says, "Look at the." Yeah, that's not right. Eleven hundred eighty-nine divided by two means you have one in the middle. So you have the 117th Psalm. It's also the shortest chapter in the entire Bible. It's like its own little chiasm spreading out in both directions. Great stuff. Okay, there you go. Vic gets to drive a shiny new Maserati home. Okay. Next week, next week, we have an analysis of 1 Samuel 17. When we are done, you will say, ooh and ah, and that ain't no jive. It's entitled, David and Goliath, The Valley of Elah. Part five. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. And he has promised to fight the battles that you face for you. And so follow him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, we got a really long poem today because I fit a lot of verses into it, but we'll be done with that in a minute, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. This is entitled, David and Goliath, the Valley of Elah, Part 4. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David. He would not yield. And the man went before him who bore the shield. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking, fit and trim. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, sneering all the while, just for kicks. And the Philistine said to David, to him directly he appealed, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, so I have spied. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. My word is true, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. So to you I tell that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Surely, Goliath, you had better fear. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. Oh, what a scene! that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone into his forehead sank, and he fell on his face to the earth. Yes, he was as good as dead. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David, just the sling alone. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took out his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it, a total rout. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Yes, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah rose and shouted and pursued the Philistines, having changed their tone as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sha'araim, 
Even as far as Gath and Ekron, with dead bodies, the road did teem. Then the children of Israel, concluding the bloody events, returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine, and to Jerusalem it he brought. But he put his armor in his tent after the battle he had fought. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, so his words did go, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, wanting to know the biz, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, victory so grand, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? Surely with delight. So David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful story, this wonderful story of redemption, of an army that is failing in your presence because they don't have trust and faith in you, and yet one man is willing to come forward and to defeat the enemy so that the armies of Israel can be saved. How wonderful it is that Jesus Christ came out of the heavenly realm and did exactly that for us. He came and fought the enemy. He defeated him for the sake of the people that he loved so much, and we thank you for that. We thank you that we are included in the family that you have established because of what Jesus Christ did. We thank you for that wonderful blessing, that treasure that we can secure in our hearts until the day you come for us. And may that day be soon. But until then, give us the wisdom to continue to proclaim your word and to tell others about your glory all the days of our life. May it be so. And may it be in Jesus' beautiful name alone. Amen. Amen.